All right, we're back. We're still talking about weird science and maybe maybe a little bit about the war on science. Uh, science is not well regarded in certain circles, shall we say. New Scientist magazine uh, decided that uh, they should take on someone who's proven himself to be no friend of science. That would be President Donald J. Trump. Now, I should note that we don't necessarily agree with New Scientist on some of what they're about to say from our quoting of them, but here it is. Last month, said the editors, we did something in these pages we have never seen fit to do before. Praise Donald Trump. We now admit that we were wrong. The U.S. president won our approval with his response to the opioid crisis. He not only recognized the problem, but also set up a special commission whose lengthy and evidence-based report made 56 recommendations for ending the crisis. It seems to have been empty words. None of the recommendations have been acted on and no new funding has been forthcoming except for a law enforcement crackdown on the drugs. So, yet again, we find ourselves criticizing Trump even though we know that some readers are tired of it. Some are his supporters. Others simply do not wish to see politics in a science magazine. We make no apology for covering global political issues. Science does not exist in a bubble. It is influenced by and influences the wider world. It also underpins an enlightened worldview that we strongly advocate. When powerful people do or say things that go against the grain of evidence, we will say so and have done so throughout our 60-year history. Our criticism is not party political. Trump is frequently in our sights because he is a serial offender. We also take aim at the UK government for its often tenuous relationship with evidence. If Hillary Clinton were in the White House or Jeremy Corbyn in number 10 Downing, we would hold them to the same standards. The meat and drink of new scientists remains science, technology, and medicine. But we cannot and will not retreat into an ivory tower, especially when the occupant of the world's most powerful political office is so contemptuous of scientific evidence and the good it can do. Ouch! Anyway, the magazine didn't stop there in a two-page piece by Jessica Hamzalow. They detail some of the uh, offenses here of President Trump. They note that in October of last year, Donald Trump acknowledged the scale of the opioid crisis by declaring a public health emergency. This temporary emergency period lasted only 90 days and expired on January 23rd. A renewal has already been announced, but during the first emergency period, the administration has achieved little, if anything. A report commissioned by Trump and published in November last year made 56 recommendations for combating substance use disorders, such as making treatment more accessible, sending people to drug courts rather than prison, supporting affected families. None has yet been implemented and no additional funds were made available for desperately needed treatment centers, and prevention programs. Is it no wonder then that one of the report's authors, former Democratic Representative Patrick Kennedy, described the administration's approach as a sham and tantamount to reshuffling chairs on the Titanic? And of course, part of this opioid crisis is, is really the war on drugs, which we have been supposedly fighting since Richard Nixon was president, to a, a loss, I think one would have to say by any, any reasonable standard. The magazine notes that treating people with substance use disorders as criminals rather than people in need of medical treatment is unlikely to help. 
They quote Scott Weiner at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston as saying, treating it as a crime is the worst thing you can do. If we start to recognize it as the disease that it is, we can treat it and get people back on track. If you criminalize it, you take away a person's chance of a normal life. But last November, U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions released funding and support to law enforcers, along with the development of a new Drug Enforcement Administration office to tackle the crisis. Yes, the same people have done such a great job up till now. The same month, the DEA moved to classify illicit versions of fentanyl as a Schedule One drug, ranking it alongside heroin, which makes actual a great deal of sense. The car fentanyl and fentanyl that's being brought in from China is, is there to be misused by addicts. Article notes that the people most likely to be arrested for possessing it are those most in need of medical treatment. Most law enforcement tends to go after the user rather than the importer or distributor. It ends up being pretty ineffective. It picks up the people who are sick. The article goes on to describe how uh, there's been a reduction in prescriptions. And yes, we would note (laughs) that the prescription rates of opioids in this country are continuing to decline as the death rate continues to rise. Anybody see a disconnect there? Talking about the reduction in in opioid prescriptions, the article notes that this tactic, while uh, ostensibly a good idea, uh, may have backfired. As the legal supply of opioids has shrunk, people seem to have turned to illicit alternatives like heroin and synthetic drugs like fentanyl. The number of prescribed opioids is declining, but overdose deaths have been rising. So yeah, doctors are being painted as bad guys in all of this, and I don't really know to a full extent what degree doctors can be said to be fueling this so-called opioid crisis. For more on that topic, we would refer you to our interview with Dr. Roger Orman, a pain specialist, which is available on our website at radioparallax.com. That was done just a few weeks back. But the flip side of this is if you have legitimate pain needs and your doctor all of a sudden is being told he can't prescribe you uh, opiates because, you know, he doesn't want to be a drug pusher and you're still in pain, you are probably going to go out and find a way to alleviate it. How much of this is for recreational use? Hard to say. I can tell you this from personal experience. Went in a couple weeks ago to have a little minor procedure done to myself. Well, I didn't, I didn't do it myself. I had another doctor do it. But um, after being in medicine for, you know, nigh on to 40 years, I, I do have some idea of how much something is likely to hurt and how much pain relief you might need. I suggested to my doctor, based on my experience, that 10 Vicodin would be a good idea. Now, to be honest, I did pad my numbers a little. I thought I could probably get by with eight. But imagine my surprise when I went to the CVS to see what he was going to bestow upon me to find that he gave me two. I can report to you, and Mr. McMillan can confirm, that I used two within the first two hours after the anesthetic wore off. Could I get by using Tylenol? Because the truth is, when you're poked with sharp objects, doctors do tend to note that things like aspirin and ibuprofen and Aleve might promote bleeding. So these are discouraged. So your choices come down to Tylenol and suffering, or, or perhaps more accurately, Tylenol and suffering. Because let's face it, folks, the reason that Tylenol is the number one drug used in hospitals across this country is that the manufacturers of Tylenol price it so that nobody running a hospital 
could imagine using another drug more often than Tylenol because it's so cheap. They want to be able to tell you that. Now, you know, working back in a cannery back when I was in my 20s and using very, very bad ergonomics, I I developed occasional back pain, which has been, you know, with me from time to time uh, over the decades. Now, I've got it pretty well controlled with exercise and better ergonomics since then, and I, I rarely have a problem. But when I do, it can be a problem. I have some familiarity with this from both sides of the fence. So yeah, let's talk about the patient who's now been told we can't give you uh, the Norco that you've been taking in the past. So, you know, you're just going to have to suffer. It's character building. I got to tell you, experiencing unnecessary pain is not necessarily character building. If taking one pill that is an opiate can change your condition from being quite comfortable in lieu of quite uncomfortable, is that so bad, assuming you do not have the kind of personality that will cause you to go out the deep end and abuse drugs, which, fortunately, I do not. But anyway, back to the fentanyl and carfentanil notions. Fentanyl is 100 times more potent than morphine. Carfentanil is 100 times as potent as fentanyl. They are thought to be responsible for the majority of accidental overdose, overdose deaths in the United States today. In December, the Trump administration responded to the commission's November report with a list of planned and ongoing actions, including expanding access to naloxone and funding development of new pain treatments. But much of this is continuing Obama-era policy, and barely anything new has been done since the emergency has been declared. The article does mention one approach, which, which has been useful, is to make drug formulations that are harder to abuse. In the past, some opioids have been crushed and snorted as a powder for a more powerful hit. Newer formulations uh, turn to gel when they are crushed. The punchline of the article, per the author, is that all of this shows that there are ways of tackling the U.S. opioid crisis, but they require money and evidence-based treatments, not sound bites and law enforcement. They close by saying... As Americans, we cannot allow this to continue, said Trump as he announced the emergency last October. More than three months later, he is still allowing just that. Well, luckily for most of us, technology is going to solve most of our problems. If you believe that, we personally would like to engage in some financial negotiations with you. For starters, you may be able to um, have you purchase the names of planets noted to be in other galaxies, which we can see by their affecting the quasars beyond them. There's a marketing idea. But no, let's talk about technology. You, you wouldn't think it'd be necessary to, to write up such a little blurb as this, which appeared in the February 18th New Scientist issue. Well, I, I, I'm just going to quote from it. Snap. One day, smart glasses that instantly share your life on social media may be the norm. But if they are capturing your every waking move, what about those private moments you don't want recorded? Which I have to pause right there and and just say, Hmm, maybe there's some aspect of my life I don't want to make public? Huh. Naturally, of course, there's a technologic solution. Next paragraph, one solution could be a device, I'm just, I'm not making this up, would be a device called Private Eye. 
using artificial intelligence, it automatically switches off when a camera detects a scene requiring privacy. Ladies and gentlemen, artificial intelligence to the rescue. I'm not making this up. I'm, this is right out of New Scientist. Reading on, a second camera then starts monitoring one of the wearer's eyes by tracking 52 features, including the pupil diameter and blinking. The device can guess when it's safe to resume filming. In a rather stunning final sentence, it says, as always on cameras become more ubiquitous, automating when to turn them off may avoid embarrassing moments. And believe it or not, I found a way to go even downhill from there. Again, we go to our old friends at New Scientist magazine. Piece by Chris Baranyuk. Uh, well, I'm just going to read from it. Headline, Police Catch Criminals with Smart Glasses. Smart glasses have found a new use. Fighting crime. In the past two months, seven fugitives, seven fugitives and 26 people traveling with fake ID, have been apprehended by police in China, thanks to glasses with built-in face recognition. Glasses with built-in face recognition. According to local media, some were wanted for allegedly involvement in human trafficking. Well, maybe. I hope these were very bad people. Uh, the firm that developed the GLXSS ProSmart Glasses, LL Vision, says... The face recognition feature is 99.4% accurate. If a match can't be found, <laughs> if a match can't be found, the officer can send a photo to be checked against a central database. It's noted that the glasses are very light, so the police can wear them all day, said Zhang Jin at LL Vision. Police in three Chinese provinces are using that technology. Some highway patrol officers are doing it when they check driver's licenses, for instance, and it can also be used for license plate recognition. They report that police in Abu Dhabi are interested in using smart glasses as well. The article goes on to note that there are reasons to be cautious about equipping police with face-recognizing smart glasses. This is a quote from Paul Bernal at the University of East Anglia. While the technology may make it easier for police to apprehend suspects, it could also be used for more nefarious purposes, such as intimidating protesters. They quote him as saying, when you feel safe and comfortable, you trust authorities with this stuff. We'll suddenly realize it's disastrous if the political climate changes. Don't worry. AI is going to fix everything. Piece by the same author two weeks earlier in New Scientist notes, under the headline, Facebook bots fill awkward silences that chatbots still have many things to master. High on the list is small talk. Researchers over in Menlo Park at, at Facebook think the best way to make software prattle away is to give it a personality. This team of bright sparks at Facebook crowdsourced their chatbot personas from 1,100 online workers on Amazon's Mechanical Turk. Workers were asked to role-play in pairs as made-up personas and to give statements describing the personas, including their, dis their likes and dislikes. 
The crowd workers' chatter was linked to these statements and used to give the chatbots an idea of what kind of person might make what utterance. The chatbots then spoke to humans, who rated their fluency, consistency, and how engaging they were. It turned out the personas improved the chatbot's performance overall. The most personable was judged to be nearly twice as fluent as a bot trained using film subtitles, for example. But bots that stuck rigidly to their persona struggled to remain interesting. Yes, your story has grown tiresome. They ended up less engaging because they just talk about themselves, says Jason Weston at Facebook AI Research. Well, isn't it nice to know they're working on making chatbots more and more realistic in order to fool us? And how about this little item of uh, (laughs) unintended consequences due to tech? You probably saw this item a few weeks ago, but evidently soldiers and intelligence agents who wear Fitbits and other fitness trackers are inadvertently revealing the locations of U.S. military and CIA sites. That information is contained in a global heat map published by Strava, a popular fitness app that uses data from users' Fitbits, Jawbones, and smartphones to map their jogging and cycling routes. Australian student Nathan Rooser studied the heat map, which showed the movements of people who have made their routes public, and noticed hot spots that matched several known U.S. bases in Syria. After he tweeted about his find, other social media users identified a suspected CIA outpost in Djibouti, a Patriot missile site in Yemen, and a U.S. special operations base in the Sahel. They quoted international security analyst Tobias Schneider as saying, this is a clear security threat. We just want to make a suggestion to the intelligence community. These people with their Fitbits, the soldiers and intelligence agents, do not give them smart glasses. Okay? Just a suggestion. We fear they will not exercise good judgment in knowing when to turn them off. And don't you worry about what's going on over at at Facebook. They've got things dialed in. (laughs) Such as the fact that Facebook is now asking its users to rank news outlets. Yes, Facebook has announced that it plans to rank news organizations by credibility based on user feedback. Facebook is not comfortable, quote-unquote, determining which news sources are most credible and trustworthy, CEO Mark Zuckerberg wrote in a blog post, a stance likely driven by the harsh criticism the social network has endured for allowing fake news to spread on its platform. The new trust rankings which will be based on ongoing consumer surveys, will determine whether news sites are prioritized in the news feed or demoted to reach fewer users. Now, are these, these, the question is, are these actual Facebook users or chatbots that have been trained to fool you? We, we don't know. We're not part of that genius package over there in Menlo Park. Speaking of AI, a poll by CNET.com notes that more than 70% of videos viewed on YouTube come from recommendations driven by artificial intelligence. Judging by what some of the things I've seen over there on uh, YouTube, I think it may more be driven by artificial stupidity. And we're quite intrigued by the lengthy article in The Economist in their science and technology section about AI. I don't feel like whipping that that horse here today, so I think I'm just going to quote instead from their editorializing about the article. 
The headline was, Peering into the Black Box. The subheadline was, Human beings do not always understand why AIs make choices. Don't panic. The editors note that there is an old joke among pilots that says the ideal flight crew is a computer, a pilot, and a dog. The computer's job is to fly the plane. The pilot's there to feed the dog. The dog's job is to bite the pilot if he tries to touch the computer. They note that handing complicated tasks to computers is not new, but a recent spurt of progress in machine learning, a subfield of artificial intelligence, has enabled computers to tackle many problems which were previously beyond them. The result has been an AI boom, with computers moving in everything from medical diagnosis and insurance to self-driving cars. There is a snag, though. Machine learning works by giving computers the ability to train themselves which adapts their programming to the task at hand. People struggle to understand exactly how those self-written programs do what they do. When algorithms are handling a trivial task, such as playing chess or recommending a film to watch, this black box problem can be safely ignored. When they are deciding who gets a loan, whether to grant parole or how to steer a car through a crowded city, it is potentially harmful. And when things go wrong as even with the best system they inevitably will, then consumers, regulators, and the courts will want to know why. The article notes that over in France, their digital economy minister, Monut Majoubi, has said that the French government should not use any algorithm whose decisions cannot be explained. That seems fair to me. But not to the economists. They say that is an overreaction. Despite their futuristic sheen, the difficulties posed by clever computers are not unprecedented. Society already has plenty of experience dealing with problematic black boxes. The most common are called human beings. They note that in response to flaws in humans, society has evolved a series of workable coping mechanisms called laws, rules, and regulations. And note that with a little tinkering, many of these can be applied to machines as well. Yes, yes. I think that laws, rules, and regulations are going to do a great job with computers. What computer is going to risk some boneheaded maneuver if it knows it's going to do some hard time in the stir? This essay gets even more confused. Hang on. Reading on. Start with human beings. They're even harder to understand than a computer program. When scientists peer inside their heads using expensive brain scanning machines, they cannot make sense of what they see. And although humans give explanations for their own behavior, they're not always accurate. It's not just that some people lie and dissemble. Even honest humans have only limited access to what is going on in their subconscious mind. And I think on that point, I'm just going to pause, take a deep breath, and talk about something else. Let's do three obituaries in three minutes. The first was the political obituary of Jacob Zuma, which we mentioned on last week's program. We neglected to mention that he's being succeeded as the leader of South Africa by the man that Nelson Mandela wanted. Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, age 65, seen as a reformist, has become the acting president in South Africa. This is a man we should talk a bit about in some future program. On more than one occasion, we've used the quip, or quote, I'm not sure which, that says that uh, the news consists of informing the public that Lord Jones is dead when they didn't even know that Lord Jones was alive, or words to that effect. And I'm sad to report here that we would like to note the passing of Pakistan's Asama Jilani Jahangir. She's described as Pakistan's loudest voice for democracy and human rights. She died on February 11th at age 66. 
Yes, we are reporting on her death, not really having ever been aware that she was alive. But we should have been. The Economist notes that when the phone rang at her law office in Lahore, she would always answer it. If she missed a call, she would swiftly return it. Someone needed help, noted the magazine. And she was often the only person in the country they could turn to. Her critics sometimes accused her of profiting from adversity, being a glory seeker. On the contrary, she was defending democracy, secularism, judicial independence, human rights. Simple tenets, but not in Pakistan. Mr. Whelan, we need more than like a minute to do this woman justice. I think we're just going to defer this uh, to a future program. Instead, in the minute plus we have left, do a more simple obituary, the passing of the velvet-voiced crooner who wowed Frank Sinatra. Vic Damone passed away a couple weeks back. Sinatra once said about him, Vic has the best pipes in the business. The obits note that Vic Damone's silky baritone and screen idle good looks made him one of the most successful romantic crooners of the post-war era. He sold millions of records, scoring hits in the 40s and 50s. It was noted that Damone never became a pop music institution like some other crooners, perhaps because he didn't have Sinatra's rugged soulfulness or Tony Bennett's range. His peers, though, always envied the way Damone's meticulous, velvety vocals emotionally connected him with an audience. And on that note, I think we'll go out with a selection of Vic Damone to end today's program. Fans especially liked his rendition of On the Street Where You Live from My Fair Lady, so why don't you see if you can dig that up, Mr. McMillan. We would note that today's program was produced by the aforementioned individual. Not Vic Damone, right? <laughs> no, not, not Vic Damone. Edward McMillan. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, and I am your faithful host, Douglas Everett. We will see you next week, when we'll probably try and not do as much wacky science. Then again, maybe we will. Who the hell knows? <laughs> to know somehow you are near I have often walked on the street before but the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before all at once and